Thank you, Abigail, and thank you all for being here this morning. Welcome to all those of you here in person and those of you joining us online. It is so great to have you with us. Uh, we're excited about this week. As you can see, the decor down the hallways and uh, here in the sanctuary, it's the beginning of our summer block party tomorrow night. It is not too late to register and invite others to come. Uh, it is a wonderful thing to see hundreds of children standing in here worshiping the Lord. All these chairs will be gone in uh, just a few hours as some volunteers clear those out, but we are super excited about that. Um, we have begun a series that we're calling Questions. We're looking at some of the significant moral and cultural questions in our world in as much as they can be addressed by the Scripture. And um, before we get into those today, just one glimpse at our vision frame. Those of you who've been here a while are familiar with our vision frame. It's, I think of it as a window frame through which you look into the future, and in the future is our vision 2025. But around the edges of the frame, our mission, what we call our discipleship pathway and our values. I'd like you to look just for a moment at the top value, uh, Bible-centered. Now, while the values are not listed in any particular order of importance, I do think uh, if we had to put one at the top, we'd put Bible-centered at the top because it's just foundational to everything else. The Scripture undergirds all that we do, our understanding of uh, what it means to have a, a Christian worldview shaped by Scripture. And I want to stress that this morning. Because um, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to live in obedience to God's Word, the Scripture, rightly interpreted, understood, and applied. Uh, Jesus did this perfectly. Uh, certainly, we do it very imperfectly. But as we seek to follow Him, we seek to honor His Word, and we believe that the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is God's inspired and authoritative word. Now, I want to stress this up front this morning because as our world changes, and it seems to me it's changing more rapidly than ever, those of us committed to honoring God's word will find ourselves swimming against the stream of our culture in a number of ways. And in no area does the current uh, rapidly uh, increasing current of our culture seemed to be so strong as in the area of sexuality. Yet Jesus calls believers to uh, have a, a viewpoint based upon his authoritative word. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus said in John 17, Thy word is truth. Jesus said in John chapter 10, the scripture cannot be broken. In equating his own words with God's words, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my word. God's unchanging word over our ever-changing cultural points of view. Now, I want to stress something this morning. I, I, I'm, I'm speaking to believers. I'm speaking to those who believe Jesus is Savior and Lord, your Savior and Lord, and you want to follow Him. I'm not expecting the world to line up with, with what I'm going to say today from the Scripture, but I'm speaking to believers and to those who are seekers or 
uh, considering putting faith in Jesus, following him. And I want to uh, hopefully uh, faithfully share what the scripture says about one of the most culturally challenging issues of our day or questions, why? Why should I honor God's guidance for sex? His guidance that many con consider to be extremely narrow. And um, I want to look to the very beginning of the book of Genesis again this morning, chapters 1 through 3. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are foundational for understanding many areas of life. We looked at Genesis last week when we talked about work, but Genesis is foundational for an understanding of God's design uh, regarding uh, any number of areas, because Genesis starts with God as creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we understand that God is our creator, many of these other issues begin to line up under that great belief. What we see in the book of Genesis, the passage Abigail read a moment ago, first of all, regarding sex, is that God designed sex for the relationship between husband and wife. Genesis 2 and verse 24 is, I believe, the most foundational verse on marriage and sex in all of Scripture. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's not the only verse in the Bible on sex and marriage, but I think it is by far the most foundational, the one that gives us God's foundational creative design. Now, what are the purposes for which God designed sex and marriage? Because sex is God's creation. He invented it. He designed it. It's good. It existed before the presence of sin in the Garden of Eden. What are its purposes? What were its purposes in God's original design? Well, number one, uh, for procreation, that is the, the potential, at least, for bearing life. We read in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Male and female, each bear God's image. And in their coming together in the one flesh union, there is the potential for new life, thus the command to be fruitful and multiply. But that's not the only purpose for which God designed sex. Pleasure is another purpose. And we look now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in the New Testament and to a passage that I think many would find very <clears throat> unusual to be coming from the pen or the mouth of the Apostle Paul. You'll see 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5 on the screen. The context of this chapter is that the Apostle Paul is writing about marriage in light of the current persecution of the church. Singleness he addresses is a great great gift of God. He elevates it highly. In fact, he says in this passage, I wish all of you were, were single like I, but not everybody has that gift. He considers singleness to be a gift with which he can serve God uh, even more fully. But he's addressing also those who are married, and he says something that in its time would have been absolutely revolutionary. 
Because in Paul's time, the points of view of women, the, the desires or preferences of women would not in any way have been uh, uh, given as, as much value as those of, of men. Some people consider Paul to be a misogynist. That is someone who, who despises women or strongly prejudiced against women. I don't think that's true at all when we read his writings. Here's what he says about the physical relationship of marriage. He writes, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, her marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. What's he talking about? Paul is talking about desire, the physical desire, pleasure in marriage that can be fulfilled in this union of husband and wife. And in his time, because of the high regard he gives the wife, his words would have been quite revolutionary. Thirdly, why else did God design this one flesh union, sex, for oneness. And again, we look at our foundational verse, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. There is something about this physical union between a husband and a wife that represents a greater reality. Let, let me stress this very strongly. This is something that I think is often not understood about the importance of uh, God's original creative design for sex. There's something about it that points to a much greater reality than the physical act. I think it points to a spiritual reality, and we're going to see that as we move through a few more scriptures this morning. But we will see, again, this word one because of something that uh, Paul taught, Jesus taught, we see in the book of Malachi, but keep this, keep this idea in mind that there's something spiritual represented by the physical act. Now, I mentioned this verse, Genesis 2.24, was foundational. And when we fast forward to the New Testament, we see that Jesus affirms God's design in creation as foundational for sex and marriage. The Pharisees, the, those religious Jews, often as odds with Christ, came up to him and tested him. You'd think over time they would have stopped testing Jesus because he always seemed to put them in their place when they came to him with the test. They tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So they're asking about divorce, the, the dissolution of a marriage. And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quote, now Jesus quotes Genesis 2.24, the most foundational verse in the Bible for marriage and sex, that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quote, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh, end of quote. And then Jesus adds words. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, as you're looking at those verses for a moment, remember, talking about 
the questions about divorce. So Jesus is replying uh, about marriage. The context is marriage. And his answer takes us all the way back to God's design in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 2.24. Jesus says, this is the foundation. This is what I take you back to. Now, here's why that's important. Since the Garden of Eden, since human sin entered the world, until the time of Christ, there had been all kinds of sexual abuse, marital abuse. If you start reading just from the book of Genesis, right after chapter 3 and reading on through, you see rape, you see polygamy, you see laws given to regulate divorce. Despite the many things that happened, despite the sins and responses to sins, things that had been allowed in the law, Jesus goes back to God's original design and he makes it normative, foundational for those who will honor him. And he makes these points. Number one, God's our creator and his design should be our guide for understanding sex and marriage. Number two, sex was designed by God for the union of one man and one woman in marriage. And then number three, and this is critically important, the marital union, God's design, is so significant that Jesus adds his own words to it. Perhaps you've heard them uttered in a marriage ceremony. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Or let not man separate. Jesus adds those words himself. And I think we understand that when we mess with God's design, we do so at our loss and at our peril. This, I think, gives us Jesus' foundational and most complete statement about marriage and sexuality. Uh, I've heard it said any number of times um, that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. You, you could add to that polygamy, any number of other things. And I would respond, he didn't need to. Because what he says here speaks volumes. His viewpoint is God's creation design. What God has joined together, he says, let not men separate. And then, number three, not only Jesus, but the Apostle Paul affirms God's design and creation as foundational for sex and marriage. We look for a moment at Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's most extensive, his longest teaching on marriage. We see again Paul giving particular honor to women, to wives, and, and we see the equality he gives with men, with husbands um, in this passage when he writes these words. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And again, he quotes Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now Paul adds words that point to the great significance of this marital union and show that it is much more than a physical act. It is pointing to a spiritual reality when he writes these words. This mystery is profound. 
<laughs> it's as if Paul is saying, I don't fully understand this, what I'm writing to you about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's a mystery. It's profound, but I know this much. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Interesting words by the Apostle Paul here. A profound mystery. In some way, marriage and the one flesh union described in Genesis 2.24, quoted by Jesus, quoted by Paul, is to be a reflection of the relationship of Christ in the church. Have you ever wondered why so frequently in the Bible, turning away from God to idolatry or love of the world is depicted as spiritual adultery? Throughout the Old Testament, God charged the Israelites when they turned away from him and his laws to worship idols with adultery, spiritual adultery. Uh, in the church, in the New Testament, uh, likewise, James writes in James chapter 4, you, you, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, love for the world is hatred toward God? God's jealous for the spirit that he's put within you. There's this comparison between adultery and, and spiritual turning away from God. The church is called the bride of Christ. In heaven, we read in the book of Revelation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so as believers, God calls us to regard marriage as, as something holy, which leads us to our, our next point. Before we leave this, I, I do want you to see this quote by Tim Keller. Because of the significance, I think, uh, of sex, I think he writes rightly in his uh, very good book, The Meaning of Marriage, the Bible does not counsel sexual abstinence before marriage because it has such a low view of sex, but because it has such a lofty one. What is being depicted in this union? Number four, sexual union is the consummation of the marriage covenant. These words are, are not as familiar as the others we've looked at today. They come from the very last book of the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi. And in this book, the prophet is rebuking the people of Israel, God's people, uh, for several things. But one of those is the abusive uh, treatment of men toward their wives. The faithlessness may have been adultery uh, when he writes, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Hold on to the word covenant. Critically important. Critically important. Did he not make them one? And now he's talking about the one flesh again. With a portion of the spirit in their union. And notice the word spirit is capitalized. Translators believe, therefore, it refers to the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, pointing to the great significance of the physical union, pointing to a spiritual reality. Now, let me pause there and just stress the prophet is calling God's people to honoring marriage as 
a covenant. And noting the terrible violation of a covenant when adultery, for example, occurs. Now, it's important for those who know the Lord to understand that this, I believe, is God's view of marriage, that it's more than a contract. Uh, You'll see an illustration on the screen. I think this is the way in the world around us, marriage is often depicted a contract between man and woman, woman and man, um, love each other, make an agreement, has certain uh, legal power to it. It's a common view, I think, as a contract. But the biblical view, I think, is better depicted by this triangular uh, illustration as a covenant. And here's the difference in a covenant and a contract. A covenant in in Scripture, I'm talking in scriptural terms now, not so much your, your neighborhood covenant or something like that. Scripture, a covenant, is typically God's relationship with his people, something he he witnesses. And uh, you, you read through the Old Testament, you read about covenants. But all of a sudden, the prophet Malachi defines marriage as a covenant. And I think a marriage covenant can be depicted this way. God is the witness of the covenant. And the prophet Malachi uh, says to the people, um, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. She's your wife by covenant. We, we pastors who, who are authorized to do weddings, uh, even still by the state as well as our, our, in our ordination, we view weddings, uh, and, and specifically here, those of us here at River Oaks, we view a wedding service, whether you have it outdoors in the wilderness, whether you have it in a barn or at the coast or here in the church, uh, we view it as a worship service. And God, when vows are taken, there'll be friends and people that are, that are witnesses of that. But the most important witness is the one at the top of that triangle, God. He is the witness of the covenant. The vows that are being made in this ceremony are being made before the Lord. This agreement that's being made before God. So it's, it's more than just a, a party more than just a good time, it's a worship service which a covenant is being made with God as witness of the covenant. Now, with that in mind, the sexual union is the consummation of the covenant. Uh, historically, that word consummation has been used for the, the physical relationship of marriage, and there have even been civil and religious laws that a, that a, a marriage can be annulled if the consummation didn't occur even if the ceremony did occur. But here's the point I want to make to you. The consummation comes after the making of the covenant. Couples will sometimes say, hey, what's the big deal if we live together, if we have sex before marriage? It's just a a matter of timing. You know, we just haven't had a ceremony yet. The big deal is that sex without marriage and vows is taking the consummation without the covenant. So in our church, our point of view, and I'm speaking to believers now, not trying to set policy for the world. Apostle Paul said, what business is it of mine to judge the world? Paul says, I'm speaking to the church. God will take care of the world. We don't need to 
to, to uh, be out there expecting the, the world to align with God's word and will and way? I'm speaking to believers now. Those who call Jesus Lord and say, I want God's best. I want to obey God's guidance. Uh, this is my understanding. Uh, because in our church here at River Oaks over the years, we pastors who, who, who get to do the weddings, we've had quite a few conversations with couples who were living together before marriage and saw nothing wrong with it. And, and it's understandable because that's our cultural viewpoint. You know, a recent Pew study it was found that the percentage of people in our country who've lived together before marriage is greater than the percentage who have ever married, and that 78% of young adults ages 18 to 29, 78% believe it is fine for a couple to live together unmarried, even if they never plan to marry. So if you believe what I'm recommending this morning, you'll be pretty unusual. Um, that's why I say it's swimming against the stream of our culture. I think in the 1990s alone, cohabitation increased by 600%, and I don't know the rate of increase since then, but I know it's incredibly high. I say that just because, well, it's the way it is in our world. So why in the world would we pastors at River Oaks recommend to couples that they not live together before they're married? I mean, doesn't, make, doesn't it make sense to give it a, a test run or a, a trial? I mean, why do we recommend not living together before marriage? I want to raise that question, phrase this way. Why honor God's guidance for sex? And by that, I mean, I mean waiting. Um, I want to give you some reasons that I believe that. Number one, because couples who wait for marriage to have sex can grow closer to God in the waiting. I'm talking now about the premarital time, the time you're waiting to be married. Look again at the triangular design that I think is representative of a covenant being made before God. And what I like about this particular uh, way of illustrating it is that as man and woman individually move closer to God in the premarital time, they at the same time move closer to each other. So we pastors believe that when a couple plans to marry, and enters into an uh, agreement with a pastor to do their wedding, their greatest possible spiritual growth together should be occurring between that time and the time of their wedding. We want them to learn to pray together. We want them to learn to study scripture together. We want them to get a vision for serving God together as a couple. And we believe that it is inconsistent to expect that to happen while willfully disobeying God's word in your physical relationship. Spiritual preparation for marriage is far more important than planning a great big celebratory reception. I think people underestimate the need for it. Secondly, why honor God's guidance in this way? Data shows, and I stress data, I'm not talking about the Bible now, data shows that couples who do not live together, who don't cohabitate, or have sex before marriage, have a greater likelihood of marital success. 
And I'll give you the reference for that at the end of this message in just a, a few minutes. It comes from a book called The Ring Makes All the Difference by Glenn Stanton. It is not biblical teaching. It's data. It's just research. It's just data. Uh, number three, why honor God's guidance in this way is Christians, our lives are a witness to those around us. A lot of times couples will say, well, we're, we'll live together, but we'll, we'll stop having sex. We'll just keep living together. It's a better financial arrangement. The problem with that is all your friends and relatives and everybody that drives by your house doesn't know that you're not having sex. Um, and Jesus said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul called us to shine as lights in the world. Like it or not, when you take the name of Jesus, you represent him. When you join a church, like our church, you like it or not, you represent the church, by the way, where you live. Now, granted, there's some complications here, some complicating factors. We've had situations where couples have been living together for years, and they've got a couple young children. And they want to get married a year from now, and they ask you to do your wedding. Are you going to ask them to move apart? Well, in a case like that, generally what we'll do, we'll put the, the interests of the children first if it's, if it's understood that's, that's not in their best interest. Um, we might say, really, their variation in these circumstances, let's go ahead and get, get the justice of the peace, register it each, go ahead and get married now, and if you'll commit to the counseling, we'll do that ceremony for you and renew your vows down the road. During COVID, I think I know of at least three couples who, um, who went ahead and got married that way and delayed their wedding, their reception, their celebration till a time when they could gather people together. Um, but I stress again, I stress again what our goal is, and I'm talking to believers now, is the greatest possible spiritual preparation for marriage because marriage is hard. Marriage is hard. Um, and then finally, I'll say this, we experience the greatest joy when we live in obedience to God's word. What I would say to a couple who's really wrestling with this is this. What we want most for you is you, you stand before God with the fullness of his blessing on your life, the fullness of his spirit working in you, and a great awareness that you are doing what you're doing in obedience to his will and his way. And assuming that you believe that the things that we've seen in Scripture uh, that, that I believe to uh, point us to the fact that we should wait for marriage, uh, for sex, assuming you believe that, um, I think it's God's best for you. And always the question will come, well, yeah, but we've already failed, already fallen, already messed up. Here's the good news. There is always a fresh start with God if we will come to him in humility and we will uh, take the words of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins. And we have all sinned, friends, and fallen short of the glory of God. If it's not sexually, it's some other way. We are all guilty. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
purpose today is not to judge anyone, not to condemn anyone. It's to point you to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way of following Jesus and to God's highest possible design, I believe, for sex and for marriage. The book of Hebrews has a remarkable verse. Chapter 9 Verses 13 and 14, it says, If the blood of bulls and goats sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, without blemish to God, purge your conscience, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You mean our consciences can be purged by faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross where he shed his blood? Yes. Yes, that's why I say you can have a fresh start. You can have a, have a clean start. And that's what we say to couples. But from here on out, let's do it God's way. So you can stand before God with the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now, let me give you just a few resources this morning. Um, if you'd like to look into this further, number one, we've prepared another one of these little booklets at our resource center. It's simply called Why Wait? Biblical Guidance for Sex and Marriage. It'll contain these little diagrams and, and much of what uh, has been said this morning um, will be included. They're free. They're at the resource center. You can pick them up today. Um, three books that I have found to, to be helpful and good. Sam Albury, Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? A uh, short book, and I think it's very, very good. Highly recommend this book. Um, Sam Albury uh, has several short books that address different issues of sexuality, and I think he does it extremely well. Glenn Stanton, The Ring Makes All the Difference. This is not biblical teaching. This is data. It is data on, um, well, uh, marital success uh, regarding uh, living together versus not living together before marriage. And then Tim and Kathy Keller, The Meaning of Marriage. This is not primarily about the physical union of marriage. It is primarily about broader, more broadly marriage. Though He does have a chapter on this, but it's a great book on marriage. A lot of material real fast. Let's pray together. Father, we come in the name of Jesus. Lord, we're your people. And Lord, we want to live for you. We want to live for your glory. Father, I pray for every person here. I pray for you, wherever, wherever each one is spiritually, that you'd lead us closer to the cross, closer to you. That you'd give us deeper gratitude for our Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. Father, I pray peace upon your people and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and your good guidance. I pray for each one of us, your highest and your best, and ask this now in the holy name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.